Techniques we discuss here are meant for licensed wildlife professionals. If you aren't licensed and trained for wildlife rehabilitation, do not attempt to capture, hold, or rehabilitate any wild animal. If you find an injured wild animal, a wildlife professional can recommend next steps. Welcome to Wildlife Rehabilitation, Rescue to Release, a podcast dedicated to licensed wildlife rehabilitators and the veterinarians who support them. I'm your host, Gail Buell. We'll tackle topics about rescue, care, management, reconditioning, and releasing wildlife found in North America. This is a deep dive into each subject. We hope to give rehabilitators information they can use because they're already going to great lengths to rescue and nurse animals back to health. An injured or orphaned wild animal's journey to restored health and independence in their natural habitat is delicate and complex. We draw techniques and expertise from many disciplines. Many animals brought into rehabilitation cannot be saved. The last gift we can give them is humane euthanasia. We will talk more about when this is necessary. Sometimes animals are deemed non-releasable and evaluated to be suitable for a life in captivity. When that happens, we shift to a long-term approach to managing their care, training, and housing. Some such animals serve as ambassador animals, a term for the animals that rehabilitators use to educate the public. Each episode, we'll speak with experts who represent specialty topics across the profession of wildlife rehabilitation, ambassador animal care and management, showcasing best practices. Today, I am talking to Sarah Cole, and she is going to share with us her journey on becoming a wildlife rehabilitator. Sarah and I do share a passion for wildlife. Um, I have been a licensed wildlife rehabilitator in Minnesota since 2001, but started volunteering in 1983-84 at the Raptor Center at the University of Minnesota and the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center of Minnesota. So we definitely share a lot in common, but we're going to hear about Sarah and her history and her uh, going forward into wildlife rehabilitation. So welcome, Sarah. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah. How about you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I am a relatively new Midwesterner. I've lived in Minnesota for about two and a half years now. I am the CEO uh, by day. I'm the CEO of the YMCA here. Um, so I love what I do, and it's very different than my passion project of wildlife rehab. And in addition to uh, rehab, I love reading and weightlifting and hanging out with my dog and just exploring my new state. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. How long have you been in Minnesota? Um, I moved here in late October of 2017, so hasn't even been quite two and a half years yet. Two and a half years. And and what state do you hail from then? I am uh, born and raised upstate New Yorker and um, also moved here most recently from upstate New York, but spent about a decade living in Massachusetts in between and a little bit of time living in Cincinnati as well. Wow. So you definitely know what snow and cold is all about. So that's a good resume builder or good thing to have to come to Minnesota, especially Northern Minnesota. A lot of that you know, you've been in a lot of different places, but how did you get 
interested in rehabilitation? Yeah, I think it really started formally when I came to Minnesota. Um, but I've been thinking about kind of what the seeds of that might have been for me. And um, I've always been interested in wildlife and in animals. I grew up in a pretty rural area. Um, and I'm the grandchild of farmers. I've just always loved animals. I love being around animals. I spent some time as a kid on my grandparents' farm. They're dairy farmers. So spent a lot of time sort of in barns and watching cattle being born and feeding calves and sort of interacting with wildlife in a variety of ways. We always had pets, but we were always really in tune. Um, my house growing up was surrounded by three fields and we were sort of out, you know, there weren't very many houses on our streets. So it was really normal to see wildlife in our yard. We'd see deer, we'd see other, you know, we'd see groundhogs, we'd see rabbits. And that was just kind of a normal part of our landscape. That was always intriguing to me. And I didn't really take it much further than that. And I think over the years just became interested in, um, you know, what might, what more might happen there in terms of wildlife. So when I got to Massachusetts or Minnesota, I'm sorry, I was looking around for volunteer opportunities. So I don't think I'd ever thought about doing anything formally. And I came to Minnesota. I read about Wildwoods. I was looking for some volunteer opportunities and it just seemed perfect. So I remember I called, it was off season. It was winter and I left a message and I didn't hear anything back and I was really sad. <laughs> and um, it was because of course it was sort of midwinter, so nothing was happening. And then I got a call in the spring and I was really excited and um, went in and had an orientation and it just felt like it went from zero to 60, you know, from there, I just was one of those volunteers who I think I started out with one shift a week and before I knew it, I was going in four days a week and, you know, just fell in love with it so quickly that it was really amazing. Awesome. So for the listeners that may not know uh, the organization Wildwoods, do you want to explain a little bit about that organization? Sure. So Wildwoods is a wildlife rehabilitation center in northern Minnesota. It is, it is not, it's not large, but it's one of the largest in the state. Certainly there's a much, much larger one near the Twin Cities, but Wildwood sees a couple thousand animals come through each year. And a little bit of everything that you can imagine, all sorts of different birds, um, raptors, all different sorts of mammals, a lot of infant mammals, a lot of orphaned mammals. And it often acts as sort of a triage. So a little bit of everything comes into Wildwoods and um, some things can be helped right there, but other things can kind of be triaged and then sent on, whether it's to the Raptor Center or to a local expert rehabilitator who might have bears or deer or, you know, some other species that they're an expert in. So the great thing is you get to see a little bit of everything. And it's a small enough shop that you really, if you're willing to learn, there's folks there who are willing to teach you about everything. So I really love that about the size of Wildwoods. It really kind of allowed me to, to stand by and learn and look and listen about a lot of different kinds of things. So I, I kind of want to dig a little bit into, um, yes, you wanted to volunteer uh, somewhere, but why a rehabilitation facility? There's lots of places to volunteer, yeah. whether it is, um, you know, especially if you want to do animals, but there's a lot of other volunteer opportunities around. So why wildlife rehabilitation? Both my parents are nurses. So I think of them as as sort of healers, right? And I've always thought that I went in a much different direction in terms of my job. I've worked, I'm a professor by education, but I've worked in the field of nonprofit 
kind of community-based, community-serving nonprofit for many years. And um, and then just recently, I sort of connected it like, oh, this is my, you know, in this capacity, I can sort of act as a healer as well. I remember as a kid, uh, there was a deer that had been hit by a car um, in our road. It was late at night. And my mom must have noticed it. It was sitting um, just right by the house. The fields were cut down, so it was really visible. And she saw that it was injured. And um, I remember her, you know, she, I think, called the local DNR probably to come out because it couldn't be saved. But I remember as a kid, it was just super impactful to me, I think, A, seeing this animal that was sort of suffering, um, and that B, there was a there was something to be done about that suffering. It, and I understood even at that time that it was a humane end, even though it was, as a child, this very dramatic experience. So I think, you know, I think that has always intrigued me. So I think although it may seem in some ways, the narrative, I think, seems accidental. I think the seeds were always there, and I've been looking for a way to kind of access that part of myself or, you know, come more into touch with the natural world and animals and sort of healing in a variety of capacities. So I think there's a lot of sort of breadcrumbs there from the past, maybe, um, that I haven't really thought about until kind of just recently. And it's so interesting that you mentioned, though, the kind of the one... Thing. There's lots of breadcrumbs, but there was one coalescing incident that happened that really turned you a little bit more toward this path, especially when you look backwards, because some of the research suggests that no matter what you feel you go into, there was usually lots of nurturing things that happened early on in your life, but often one thing that you can point to that says, that's when I knew... I wanted to go into the medical field or that's when I knew I wanted to do X, Y, or Z. So I find it very fascinating um, that, that, that this conversation leads you right to that incident. And I remember at the time, again, it was all very, it, the memory is really clear to me, but I remember at the time it was really clear even then, even as a child, that this was the right thing to do and mm-hmm. that everybody there you know, um, my parents were very, you know, good about sort of talking about life and death, you know, in a variety of ways with us and um, the folks who came to do it, you know, it was really clear that this was, that this was sort of a gracious act. And I remember even as a kid feeling like, oh, this is the right thing, right? That the bad thing wasn't the death, the bad thing was this animal sitting there suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember how afraid it was. I mean, it was a full grown deer, like a female deer. And I remember, you know, it was this kind of look in its eyes, right? It couldn't move. It's surrounded by people, right? It's in pain. So I think to me, it just felt so reassuring that there was something to do, you know? So almost like this was our part in the natural scheme of things that even though it didn't have a quote unquote happy ending, I remember at the time feeling really comforted, like, Mm -hmm. oh, there's something we can do to be helpful, you know, and that the worst thing would have just been the, the prolonging of that suffering. All right. All right. Excellent. Do you remember way back when? I, I, I'm i just so fascinated, but do you remember if you had any questions and your parents answering them or anything like that? Yeah. So I think I remember, you know, talking to my mom both during the time, you know, who is she going to call and what's going to happen? Um, and then after the fact, you know, and she just was very straightforward about the fact that our role in this can be the easing of suffering and sort of death with dignity. And those are topics that weren't that unusual around our house because my parents 
again, we're both nurses and we were often in hospitals and we had known folks who had passed away that we'd met at the hospital. And so they were really great about, I think, talking about that kind of stuff. And, and both themselves, even though they're, again, nurses, I remember, again, as I've been thinking about this, kind of where did this all come from for me? They were both always really kind in the natural world. You know, my dad is a hunter, comes from a sort of impoverished rural family, but had very strict uh, guidelines about sort of how they hunt and using the animal, using all parts of the animal and all these sorts of things. And, and for my mom's part, I remember as a kid, we had a big bay window in our house and birds were constant, it felt like constantly hitting the window. And my mom would sort of always go out and sort of check them and wrap them up. And, you know, so she was, they were sort of, you know, all these little tiny things that don't seem connected, but they were always sort of being good stewards of the natural world in one way or the other. And I don't think we talked a lot about it, but as I look back, I start to see those again, they feel like breadcrumbs to me, little, little moments. It sounds a lot like they were modeling behavior. Right. Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So. Now you've chosen that you're going to get your own rehab permit and you're thinking you might focus on cottontail rabbits. Um, and you may or may not know that cottontail rabbits, uh, squirrels in particular, gray squirrels and red squirrels, but gray squirrels in particular and waterfowl are the three most common uh, animals that are brought to rehabilitators. Um, and I think that is all across the country. I know it's in the top tier um, states in the United States, but it may be all across the country um, as well. And part of that has to do with urbanization and, and those are the animals you often find in urban areas, but you decided on, on one of those. So that's, that's awesome to begin with because, you know, of course we need more rehabilitators in those areas. So now you've decided that you're going to do this. And so how did you have the conversation with your family that you are going to that you want to pursue this? Yeah, you know, I think by the time I had the conversation, it was no big surprise. So my, um, my home family um, is just my husband, Andrew, and he had sort of been there the whole time that I'd been getting, spending more and more time at Wildwoods and kind of coming and going at odd hours sometimes so that I could do a feed or do, you know, jump in and do something. So it was really no surprise to him. And in fact, we were house hunting at the time and one of my parameters for a house became uh, a room for rehab. So our realtors got to know us very well. I looked at 175 houses. Uh, yes, <laughs> no exaggeration. And um, they, would come, they came to know that one of my must-haves was a space in the house where I could do rehab. So it started to become part of our conversation every time we would go out and see a house. Is there a space here? You know, what would this look like? Or how could we modify the space? So... He just, you know, he's a gracious man and uh, has always been very supportive of me in a number of ways, including moving across the country for my career. So I think he wasn't that surprised and just sort of took it, uh, took it in stride. So it became, it did, we did find uh, our house finally, and it has what I felt like was a perfect room. In fact, when I saw it, I was like, that's the rehab room. Um, and I, I, I want it to me. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's not that big of a room. I think it's about eight by eight, um, the main room, but it has cabinets and a counter, um, sort of up and down cabinets and a counter and a strip of, I'm sitting in there right now, and a strip of uh, plugs. So it, it actually looks exactly like a rehab room to the point where I thought to myself, 
was the woman living here? I, I don't know. I guess I shouldn't assume the woman of the couple, but was the person who was living here doing wildlife rehab? Because it just seemed like exactly the room you would build for yourself. So we, of course, met them, but only at the closing. And I think I caught them off guard because I was like, I just have one question. You know, what were you doing in that room, in that little room um, downstairs? Yeah, I was like, what, what were you doing in that room? Because it's so perfect. And she said she was doing crafts. So I think it was just a craft room. Um, but I sort of lucked out and I felt like it was kind of the perfect room in a lot of ways. So um, got my, hit my checklist for one of our house requirements. So I, I think, and then my family, um, my other family, my parents and my siblings, um, I've always just been intrigued, I think. I was, from the very beginning, would sort of tell stories about Wildwoods and about the things that I'd seen and the things that I'd gotten to work with, and everybody um, was really intrigued. In fact, I think they're way more intrigued about that than they are about my day job. So, you know, everyone, you know, when I talk to folks, I talk to my parents, they'll always say, you know, what's new or what have you seen or what came through? So I think they have always gotten a kick out of hearing about different animals that I've gotten to see close up or, you know, just things like that. They've always been intrigued. Okay. So now you've got the space, you, you've talked to your family, you've, you've got, everybody's on board with this. How did you like figure out what your next steps were? What did you do? I had gotten my hands on the study guides quite a while ago. Uh, I knew that I had to take the exam. Um, and so really, you know, was studying for the exam. And then meanwhile, again, lucky enough um, through Wildwoods to know lots of folks who are involved in that world and could really say to me, um, you know, here's the things you have to do, you know, pass the exam. I knew I had, to, you know, step one for me was getting through the exam. So I passed the exam um, and then knew that, you know, the next steps were finding a vet and finding a mentor. Um, and someone had given me your name and I thought, well, she probably won't say yes. I mean, she doesn't know me, but, um, you might as well try to get the best person. Right. So, um, I feel like, you know, I reached out to you and you were so gracious to say yes, that you'd work with me. And simultaneously I'd worked with Leslie through Wildwoods and she was gracious enough to say she would work with me. So I felt like the, that was, you know, in my mind, that might've been a really complicated part of the process, which really felt pretty easy. Um, and I'm a nerd. So, I mean, studying and planning for things is just right up my alley. So, um, you know, that all felt, felt really good. And by the time I was sitting down to fill out the form, I'd read a lot of things and spoken to a lot of folks and talked to other folks who had been through it. So it actually ended up feeling pretty smooth in terms of the kind of paperwork part of the process and then connecting with some folks who were willing to work with me as a mentor and a vet. Well, I will tell you flattery, flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but so let, digging into a little bit of the study guide. So um, not every state is like Minnesota. So there's, there's different states have different regulations uh, that revolve around wildlife rehabilitation. There's some states that also do not allow it um, at all um, or only allow it federally. So just as a little bit background for our the listeners is that in Minnesota, um, we have three levels of permits. One is called a novice, general is the next one, and then master level permit holder is the third. And each have different uh, qualifications. Like for a novice, you can only have healthy orphans. For general, then you can start having injured uh, wildlife. Um, and then master, hopefully you've had plenty of experience so you can also mentor uh, new folks coming into the field. So that's one of the things. If you are just going to be working with mammals like Sarah, she and you would only need a state 
permit to do that. If, however, you are interested in doing birds at all, you need to get a federal uh, permit, a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, permit to do wildlife rehabilitation with birds. In Minnesota, you have to study for a test at each level of permit, uh, pass that test, and at least when you're first coming into your novice permit, and if you make any big changes, like you move or you build extra cages or things like that, you have to go through an inspection uh, just to make sure that you're on, uh, you have the minimum requirements uh, to take care of those particular animals that you want to take care of. So back to the test, like when you studied, did you find that I'm just trying to give our listeners an idea. Like, did you study for a night? Did you study, did you read it, read the book? I mean, the book, if you look at it, it's still in printed form, but it's like eight and a half by 11 sheets. And it's like 300 pages or something like that. I mean, it's a pretty thick couple, three inches thick book. I mean, how, what was that process like for you? I mean, how do you study for something? Yeah. Like yeah, again, I'm a lifelong nerd. So studying for tests is actually something I sort of miss doing. That's only a real nerd would say that. But um, in my day to day life, you know, I don't get to take tests anymore, really. So um, I had read the book. Um, and then really, the study guide was super helpful to me. You know, I saw, uh, at least in our state, all the all the questions come out of the study guide. So, um, you know, there was a lot of them, but I just really spent a couple of months probably going through and just quizzing myself. So um, I will say too, I think the book was really helpful and it was really helpful that by then I had a couple of years of hands-on experience. So some of the answers to the questions I knew because I had actually had experience right at Wildwoods with these different scenarios. Um, and I had taken a basics course at the last NWRA conference, which was also really helpful to me. So I'd taken that two-day basics course, that IWRC course, and that was also just some real fundamental type information. Mm -hmm. So I think the mix of those things was really helpful, but um, yeah, I just would, you know, birds are one of my weakest areas. I've worked the least with birds. Um, so I knew, you know, I spent a lot of time on that section because I certainly felt a lot more adept with some of the mammal questions. Um, but really, yeah, just spend some time every night going through it and quizzing myself on the questions that I, you know, was missing um, and managed to study enough that I got 100 on the quiz, which I, you know, made me ridiculously proud only because, you know, when's the last time a nerd could get 100 on a quiz in her middle? Yeah, it is 100 out of 100. Yeah, so yeah. So, I mean, come on. <laughs> um, but no, it was, honestly, I overstudied, which is pretty typical for me. And um, but the guide was really helpful. The book was really helpful. And it was just helpful to know these were the exact questions that were going to be on there. So um, nobody should feel too intimidated. I think that's a really nice aspect of it. Um, and then I felt like I learned new things by studying too. So that was really nice. There were things that I learned that I hadn't learned from my hands-on experience. And there were some facts that I learned about, especially about different regulations, especially around birds. Again, that's that's the area I probably worked it in the least. Um, so just around federal regulations around birds, for example, and different types of things. So the process actually left me feeling like I had learned some things too, which was really good. Excellent. I just want to mention for everybody that uh, Sarah mentioned two organizations, NWRA and IWRC. And NWRA is the National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association. And IWRC is the International Wildlife Rehabilitators Council. Minnesota has the, the 
great lucky fortune to have NWRA based out of Minnesota, uh, but they do a conference every year and it's in different parts of the state, uh, different parts of the United States. Uh, IWRC hosts a lot of online classes and they also have what are called skills seminars where they will take uh, experts in certain areas and if as a rehabilitator can get a group of folks together that wants to learn about rehabilitation or are rehabilitators and want to up their game, they can bring IWRC in for skills seminar and they will go anywhere, not only in the U.S., but they go around the world. So those two organizations are very good organizations. They're membership organizations, but they have lots and lots of resources. So glad to hear that, that uh, you already know about those organizations, but so far in the story, if you were to look back, you know, doing the volunteer work and then deciding to become a rehabilitator, studying and then taking the test, also going to conferences and and taking some of these these seminars on some basics. If you were to give somebody brand new out of the gate, they they're just thinking about wildlife rehabilitation. Would you say, yep, that's the path to go? Or would you say, oh, I would tweak it here and there? What would you do? What would you give them? What advice would you say? You know, I think um, if you have a nearby center and I'm, you know, lucky enough to live, you know, just a few miles away from Wildwoods, I think if you have any sort of center like that, that you can spend some time in, it's really invaluable. And maybe that's just another rehabber, right? Who has a home rehab, because I think that kind of hands-on experience in a variety of ways just those hours of doing things, whether it's feeding or cleaning cages or just watching as things happen, really, I think was probably the most valuable for me. And to always be working alongside folks, um, whether it was Farzad, who was leading the center at that time, or any of the staff there were always really gracious. If I said, I want to know more about um, euthanizing, or I want to know more about intake, or you know, really, I could ask about anything, and they were always willing to let me sort of stand there and learn and watch. So that was really great. Um, I know that might not be the situation for everyone. Someone might find themselves in a space where they don't have another local rehabber. And in that case, I would say connecting with folks is powerful as well. So one of my, um, you know, friends and, and mentors, I don't know if she she's ever officially said she's a mentor, but um, there's a rehabber named Peggy Pop in Wisconsin. And I had the good fortune to get connected with her early on. And I don't know how many texts and phone calls we've had. Um, I've been to visit her a couple times and just seeing her set up. She's a home-based rehabber, tons of experience, really gracious. I think that kind of ability to communicate with other folks and just ask questions has also been really powerful. So there's probably no one right way to do it, but I do feel very lucky that I was able to spend so much time at Wildwoods and also connect with some other rehabbers. Um, and I've also gone out of my way to do that too. So um, spent a day, drove 12 hours to spend a day at fellow mortals, um, also in Wisconsin, um, because they have someone on staff there who's, who's known as an expert in Eastern Cottontails. So I think, you know, if you can just source out the information um, and there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great books and articles, but I feel like when you can connect with a real person, and ask questions. That's always been super valuable to me. So it certainly was helpful for me um, to have those kind of hands-on or question-based resources. Yeah, and it's probably a lot easier once you reached out and talked to somebody or met somebody in person to then, when you need help, it's much easier to reach out and say, oh yes. my gosh, I'm seeing this, what does this mean? 
or percent yes yes or remind me again what formula mix you're using and why and you know or i have this happening what do you think you know there were a couple times last year that um i'd have a, a situation with a rabbit and um you know i'd say to, i'd text peggy and just say you know what have you ever had this what do you think and you know, she just had a different perspective. So it's helpful, you know, to, to have someone say, yep, I've been there and here's what I did or watch this or try this. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. It's always nice. Or you meet someone at a conference and then you're sort of fast friends. It feels like um, the community is really generous, at least the part that I've, um, that I've interacted with. And I'm guessing it's probably widespread that folks are really willing to share their experiences, their formulas, what's worked for them, you know, what, what hasn't worked for them. And that's been really great for me because I always have a lot of questions. Yeah, it's definitely a wonderful community. And I do think it's a pretty close knit community. Uh, I could have challenges just like any community, right. especially in a community far flung like wildlife rehabilitation. Hmm. Okay. So what is the next part of this journey? You've passed your test hundred out of a hundred. Yeah. So I passed my test. And um, as I mentioned, I was lucky enough to have, um, someone awesome say they would be my mentor and uh, someone awesome say they'd be my vet. So um, I kind of felt like I pretty quickly had my little team. Um, and then I officially sent in the permit application. And so the last step for me is that facility inspection. Um, so just making sure that my space is ready to go. And, um, and then, yeah, the new kind of new slash not new frontier, you know, of doing some of the things that I've spent many hours doing but just in a slightly different space so with that you get your facilities inspection and so what kinds of things will you be doing to prepare for that we inherited a really nice space that i think works pretty well so just making sure that the space i didn't really have too much to do to make sure the space itself was ready to go but just that i had everything you know do i have enough nipples do i have that my formula mixes in place? Do I have all the caging supplies? So really at this point, kind of just going through a list for me um, and checking off that I kind of have everything that I need. Again, I'm used to working at a center where I had the luxury of sort of just walking out into the hall and grabbing things, you know? So um, now I just have to make sure that I have all those things at hand um, and that they're ready to go. So really it's kind of just shopping checklists and um, making sure that I'm double checking with Wildwoods, I've gone back a couple times and just reminded myself, okay, what size, you know, syringes did we use the most often? I want to make sure I have all three sizes that we use, you know, just kind of reminding myself of things that might come in handy. As you're talking about supplies, I was just reminiscing in my head that actually when I started in rehabilitation, there was no such thing as the internet. Oh, I can't even imagine how difficult that would be. <laughs> to get supplies and to, it was, there was no email. There was no texting. There was no internet. And and in reality, I mean, I'm not that old. No, no, it wasn't. It happened quickly. Uh, Sarah, I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to me and to talk to our listeners about how this journey is going for you uh, in wildlife rehabilitation. And and we may have to check back in in a year. For sure. Yeah, I hope. Right. Let's see what I learned this summer. This was another episode of Wildlife Rehabilitation Rescue to Release. We're glad you joined us today. Wildlife Rehabilitation Rescue to Release is a production of Partners for Wildlife, 
working hand in hand with wildlife rehabilitators and veterinarians to improve the welfare of orphaned, ill, and injured wildlife. Our executive producer is me, Gail Buell. I'm the partnership coordinator for Partners for Wildlife at the University of Minnesota College of Veterinary Medicine's Raptor Center. Our producer is Kirk Clucky. To learn more about the Raptor Center and Partners for Wildlife, visit raptor.umn.edu. Are you interested in becoming a licensed wildlife rehabilitator? Visit the National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association website at nwrawildlife.org for resources to get started. And remember, if you do find an injured or orphaned animal, please contact a licensed wildlife rehabilitator in your area. And that's our show. Hope you'll join us next time.